0: Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I have the privilege of speaking with Davidson Day parent Camille Harper. Camille works in human resources for Wells Fargo and has had a fascinating career helping others reach their potential. Camille has spent a lot of time facilitating change and her advice has been tremendously helpful for me during my time at Davidson Day. Camille, thank you so much for being here today. So I'd like to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like?
1: I was born in Trinidad in the Caribbean, and my mom and dad were also born in the Caribbean in Trinidad, and so they immigrated to New York when I was a baby. My childhood was great. My dad, as an immigrant, opened his own auto mechanic business, and my mom worked in a personnel department for a hospital. As immigrants, Family was important. It was centric to everything that we did. So every holiday was spent with immediate family. So if one had, all had. And if someone needed a sitter, all of us cousins would go someplace else. You know, and and it was really a community onto itself. And the summer times were filled with me traveling to. The Caribbean, so back to Trinidad. So I remember as a child, the day that school ended, the very next day I was on a flight going to Trinidad, and I wouldn't return back to New York until the day before school started. My summers were split between my mom's family in Trinidad and my dad's side in Trinidad. I did that really until I was a teenager. And then at that point, I begged to go to summer camps to Ah. be with peers of my own. And so my summers were then spent upstate New York at sleepaway camps until, you know, being of age to work. And then, of course, I got to get my own spending money. And so you start with your first job working in a grocery store and then you go from there earning your own bucks. Right. Right. At age 18, I became a U.S. nationalized citizen, meaning I took a test to become a U.S. citizen. And I now hold dual citizenship.
0: What an amazing story. So spending your childhood between Trinidad and the United States, how did that influence your thinking and view of the world?
1: You know, I've sat on many of the diversity calls. That you guys have had in the past, and my thoughts would always resonate with the people who shared that sense of okay, where do I belong? I'm still a Caribbean American, right? I'm still Caribbean, and sometimes I didn't feel like I was a great New Yorker, and then I'd go to the Caribbean, and and you know, it always felt mixed up. I was not Caribbean enough, or not New York enough, right? And so, trying to navigate between those two cultures and those two worlds and making it work, you know, I remember listening to people on a diversity calls have those struggles of two worlds and how you mesh them together. And I could re- think about that and, and feel, hey, that was my life too.
0: And over time, how have you meshed them together?
1: Well, I've learned that both play a significant role in who I've become. My foundation yeah. and what's closest to my core is what my Caribbean family have instilled in me, work hard, you know, nothing's given to you. You you gotta pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen. And then there's that American part of me that's like, I'm gonna blaze my own way. The sky's the limit. And you just bring them together and you reconcile that with the way that feels most authentic to you. So that's what I've done.
0: What a beautiful answer. It is a challenge like you, I held dual citizenship. And, you know, I have lived in the United States for 13 years. I've been coming back and forth from the US. I met my wife at college since the late 90s. Both my kids were born here and, you know, I'm an American citizen. I'm an Australian citizen. And it's sort of like... What does that mean? Like am I Australian? Like I haven't lived there for a long long time, right? I've my formative years as a as a school leader, as a father have all been in the United States and it's it is interesting like just like if you ask a question where is home? So if someone's ask you that where would home be for you?
1: Home is definitely the United States. But okay. that's a great question because the minute I step off the plane in Trinidad, The smell, the sun, it touches me in such a way that in my spirit, that too is home, you know, and that's something that never leaves you. That's where I was born. So again, just stepping off the airplane and smelling the air brings me to still a home and a peaceful feeling.
0: And how have you kept that alive with Skylar? Has she been able to go back and forth to Trinidad as well over the years?
1: That was important to me because I also wanted Skye to know that there's this whole other part of her that she needs to tap into as well. So Skye has been to Trinidad. I mean, her passport at some point had more stamps than mine. So she would definitely go to Trinidad. And I remember when she was younger, she was like, Mommy, I want to play soccer. And I'm like, OK, well, guess what? You're going to go to Trinidad and you're going to play soccer in Trinidad. Football, yeah. what they call it. If you're going to play soccer, you're going to learn it in the Caribbean. So I really, as best as I can, try to immerse her in that part of the culture to always remember that that is running in her veins too.
0: And going back again is, I know education's really important to you. And so what were some of your fondest memories of being at school?
1: So... I remember going to a private school and having two of my best friends in the whole wide world attending the school. And I remember around the fourth grade, my mom said, you're gonna take a test to go to a different school. And that shook me to my core because I really was not gonna have any part of breaking up the best friend bond. And so I remember the day came to take this test and I specifically and deliberately didn't do my best, but yet family pride wouldn't allow me to do my worst. (laughs) So I was somewhere in the middle there and imagine my horror to realize I got accepted to this school. Yeah. So I was taken out of the school with my best friends, and I then attended a school all the way on the other side of Brooklyn, New York, and the school was named Philippa Skyler, School for the Gifted and Talented. Ah. So by the time I entered that school, I was already playing the piano. But going to this school allowed me to really hone in on my love for music. So I learned how to play the clarinet and the flute in this school, and my love for music even took me to playing in the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade several years Wow! and even playing in Carnegie Hall. So from this change is the school that I did not want to go to impacted my life in such a way that I named my only child after it, right? So that's the irony of it all.
0: There's so many questions I'd love to ask you about growing up. I have quite an affinity for Trinidad, even though I've never been there because we grow up being cricket fans and some of the greatest ever cricketers have come from Trinidad and and the the broader sort of Caribbean. So just talk about sort of going in the summers, what you would do, what it's like there.
1: Yeah, definitely. Thank you for the opportunity for that. So Trinidad is hot yet cool. I always loved the evenings when it would cool down a little and it's just a gentle breeze and you remember that. Trinidad always felt safe. It felt different from New York in the sense that the people are family. The people who live on the block have lived on the block for years and even property has passed down from generation to generation. And so you know your neighbors, you know the people across the street. And so we would run and play in the middle of the street and just frolic from the time you wake up until the time you're called in to kind of wind down. I had cousins in Trinidad my same age. So it was, like I said, nothing for us to get the the fun going first thing in the morning to the evening time. It's a laid back atmosphere even so much so that my cousins would remark, "You Americans, you're so uptight and you always have to be going at this lightning speed because I'm like, okay, got to get it done, got to do this." And they're like, "No." They just have that peaceful vibe to it'll get done when it gets done. Our hangouts included going yeah. to the beach and just staying at the beach all day long, packing lunch and making a day out of being on the beach and spending your time in the ocean.
0: Yeah, wow, it just sounds amazing. You graduated school in New York, and then can you describe your pathway? Because now you work for Wells Fargo. What was the the journey that led you there?
1: You know, it's even a funny story there too. I just passed my five-year anniversary at Wells Fargo last Tuesday. When I relocated to Charlotte, I joined Wells Fargo in a temporary position working on a project. So while working on the project, I would give 100% of myself. But then when I was done working on the project and and I was on my time, I gave 101% of myself to finding a job outside of Wells Fargo because I really didn't want to work for a large organization again in my career. And and so I gave it my all. Pete, I pound the pavement, I wore off the soles of some really good shoes, interviewing all to no avail. The project's over and Wells Fargo offers me three different roles within the organization permanently. And five years later, here I am, still at Wells Fargo, the place I was dead set that I wouldn't work for. Mm -hmm. my first ever corporate HR job was Merrill Lynch. So again, I had the experience working for a large financial industry back in Merrill Lynch heydays in New York. And then from there, I've traveled a lot. So I moved to the Virginia Beach area and I, I worked in recruiting. And then from there, I did a stint in the Northern Virginia area. So the DMV area, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, and worked for government contractors. And that in itself was such a great learning experience for me. I held the role often as a benefits manager at ICF. I was responsible for the US employees benefits. ICF at the time really wanted to grow through acquisition. So from there, my title changed to global benefits manager. Mm. And then from there, I even moved on to become the global mobility manager. So responsible for moving talent throughout the organization, both domestically and internationally. So I've really played a lot of different roles within the HR space for 20 plus years. And that's pretty much been my journey to Wells Fargo.
0: And it's such a fascinating story. You have a fascinating job there. Do you mind just talking a little bit about your day to day?
1: My day to day is really working with managers throughout the day helping them to address performance and conduct issues with employees. So my day to day on any given day is listening to a manager make their case for how do I get the best from this employee and coaching them through what that looks like. Having conversations about where you are, where you want to be and growing them. Showing them that there's something in them that you see and here's how we're going to capitalize on it. A lot of times I I teach managers that you can have conversations that encourages an employee to say, hey, I'm tapped out. I think a lot of times managers stray away from that level of honesty and a role as a manager, as a leader is to say, "Okay, you might be tapped out here, but there's still room in this great organization to help you move to that next place. And that's where my role as a a leader is, to help you get to that next place if here is no longer where you wanna be.
0: We've had a few conversations about change management, and I've been looking forward to furthering our conversation on this podcast. How did you begin to work in change management? Was it sort of right at the beginning when you were in your HR career?
1: No, not at all. Change management came with, towards the middle of my career when I was in the Northern Virginia area. So specifically, parole Systems. Parole system actually was Ross Perot's company before he sold it to Dell. And then ICF International. Those were the two companies that really kind of just thrust me into the change space without me knowing that that's what my future held for me. So ICF specifically had the goal of growing to be this 1 billion company through acquisition. And so in the four years that I was there, they acquired five different companies it was a constant change and bringing in new employees into the fold and acclimating them to the culture, to the organization and to the expectations. So I was used to, again, having the responsibility of benefits for employees solely in the u.s and then it overnight it changed to now i'm responsible for the employees in kenya i'm responsible for our employees in russia and i'm responsible for employees in thailand and on and on and on and so for me i wanted to be able to kind of Gain some depth in the change space. And so at that time, I said, you know what, I'm going back to school for my master's. And so I went to Marymount University to get my master's in human resources management, and then a graduate certificate in organizational development. Mm -hmm. So, at that time, it felt like the right time to go back to school because I was able to really marry the theoretical with the practical because I'm learning it and I'm doing it.
0: What has this line of work taught you about people?
1: Importantly, everyone's change tolerance level is different. Mm. And so, you can't take it personal. Mm -hmm. There are some people when you announce change, they're gung-ho, they're immediately let's, let's get it, <laughs> right? And then there's others that are gonna be kicking and screaming the whole way through the change. Sometimes people need a why, right? So mm. sometimes that's important, the context that people need. Change without trust is often chaos. I like that statement. I might not like to change, but if I trust the leader, I'm willing to go along for the ride. And often people want to know how is this change going to impact me directly and or my family? So sometimes organizations are so focused on the big and sometimes you just have to bring it small. I just Mm -hmm. need to know, okay, how is this going to impact my day to day and or the people I love?
0: What practical approaches have you seen companies use to affect change in a positive way?
1: Change that is done through a process, Mm -hmm. change that's not a done-in-one, to me is the most effective way to go through the change. Okay, Here's the process to me that I've seen that works well. You start first by engaging your stakeholders in the change. The people who have the highest level of commitment to the change within the organization. And then the second step is you pull together a feedback group. And this is often where I see companies go south. Something about having a feedback group is scary to organizations. And I think the biggest part that is scary is how do you go about picking these trusted people? You are looking for trusted members within the organization. You're looking to have this group be diverse amongst the lines of business within the organization. And you're even looking for people who may be hourly and salaried. You want to make sure there's enough diversity in this group so that you're really getting the feedback that you need. And the group should know from the first meeting that the change itself cannot leak. So Mm. you're trusting these people. You've brought them together in this group because you value their opinion and their input and their role within the organization. And you plan to use them in such a role to garner their feedback. However, should the change leak, the group as a whole would be disbanded.
0: Wow. So we're not
1: going to chase down who said it. We're getting rid of the whole group. In my career, I have never seen the change leak. Why? Because you started with the who. Who did you pick? You made sure you stuck with trusted, invested individuals within the organization. I would rather know from the five people in this feedback group that the change I am proposing has minefields rather than being out on the larger stage of 5,000 employees and getting their feedback at that time. So that's why that feedback group is important. The third aspect is you announce the change. And the day after you announce the change, you assemble your change team in what I call the war room. Mm -hmm. The war room is a conference room that you and this team are gonna be in for the next five days, okay? The idea is the first day after the change is announced is the longest that you and this change team should be in this conference room. Mm -hmm. Every day subsequently should be less and less time till the fifth day you cancel the conference room reservation. If you're effectively managing the change. Now here's why the war room is important. When you announce change, understandably, there's gonna be questions concerns or issues you want your change team the people who are responding to the concerns the issues the feedback to all be in one room Mm. they all need to be singing from the same song sheet when they disseminate the answers okay and you also want to have someone in that room writing out the questions on a whiteboard Mm -hmm. and writing out the three bullets to the response. So now we all don't have to copy and paste the answer (laughs) to each person, but we should all be hitting those three bullets each time we respond. And then at the end of your five days, those questions on that whiteboard now go into your FAQ document that you send out after maybe a week or two to say, you know, we went through this change. And you guys came back with some really great questions that are compiled in this FAQ document. And so now you're still massaging the change with the employees. And then the last part of the change process is documenting Mm -hmm. the highs, the lows, the pain points. Mm -hmm. Because organizations, ideally, you're making a big change and you might not make yet another big change until three to five years down the road. Those players that help you get through the change may not be with the organization or might be in a different role or in a different capacity. So the person who has documented that process now has shared this information with you and you can now recreate the wheel with this new change that you have to announce and then avoid the minefields. So that to me is the best way to affect change within an organization, making it a process.
0: Yeah. I mean, so beautifully described. Thank you. You've been working in organizations that are like a very large and I'm sure we have people listening or even here we have around 100 employees and other people might be running companies that are even smaller than that. Say you're doing this small little group that's your change group. And how do you go about, I mean, this is going right back to the beginning, just like picking that group to get diverse perspectives, but also trying to make sure that it's not seen as sort of a closed shop? I imagine that can be challenging.
1: That's a really great question. And I'm sorry I didn't highlight that. Okay. No one should know that there's this group. Oh, okay. This is not something that they then leave the feedback group and say, guess where I just was, you know, mm. I have this special invite and you don't. No one should know that this is the role that they play. Right, within the organization. And I'll give you an example of how that anonymity actually helped me. Acquisitions, that's the toughest crowd to bring along with a change and understandably so. Right, They wake up one morning only to find out the company they've worked for has now been sold and now you're part of this larger organization. And I remember doing a presentation with these newly acquired employees And I remembered that in this presentation, we had one person who was part of this feedback group in the room. They were raking me over the coals. (laughs) They were just dragging me to and from, right? Because they were change resistant. Mm -hmm. And I remember that person raising their hand to give feedback and just with Their feedback alone, it changed the dynamic in the room. Because Mm. again, we're going back to trusted and invested person within the organization. So this is someone that has some level of clout or followership within the organization. So he was able to then turn the venom, right, from the change and kind of cool the room. For level-headedness to prevail. So I say that to say, again, they didn't know his role in the group, but that's how it was helpful because he knew of the change, right? He knew of certain things and he was able to say, wait, have you guys considered this and changed the actual dynamic of the room in that moment?
0: Yeah, I love that term, trusted and invested. I'm sure people are going about change management in very like open-hearted ways and they, they truly want to do it, but it just falls apart, right? What have you seen, seen that hasn't worked?
1: Sure, change without purpose, okay? Okay. So changing to keep up with your competitors. So it's not quite authentic to your organization, but because everyone else in this space is doing it, we now say, okay, we have to change too. That can often be a disaster. Organizations that emphasize the delivery of the message rather than massaging the message. So for example, Mm. I've seen in organizations where there's so much emphasis put on the bullets in the PowerPoint, right? Rather than massaging the message after the PowerPoint. Because you have to realize everyone is going through the change process Differently. So if you're so focused just on this PowerPoint that you're gonna deliver, right? And not massaging the afterwards of this news, then that's where you can have breakdown. Change without the context or the why, especially Mm -hmm. if it's bad news. A lot of times I've seen organizations stray away from delivering the bad news or the preemptive things that we have to do to avoid the bad. So Your employees are smart enough to feel like, wait a minute, this change doesn't seem like the natural progression for the organization. What am I missing? They're able to piece that there's something that you're not telling them.
0: You've given me really good advice in the past, and I'd love you to share with everyone else about how to phrase that when there's things you can't say, an event has happened, there's information that you have that you can't share. How do you coach people to phrase that?
1: Yeah. So in your line of work, there's always going to be information that you have to keep close to the vest and that you're not able to share. And Part of delivering that message is saying, hey, there's more to the story, which I am not at liberty to share. Mm -hmm. However, please understand that the story is not me. That helps people then say, oh, okay. So there's two things I hear in that message. From that, I understand that there's something you can't tell me And there's also part of the story that has nothing to do with you at all.
0: Yeah. Right? Because sometimes when something goes wrong or there needs to be someone to... I guess, pin it on, right? And then you might be the person delivering the news, but you're not necessarily the person whose fault it is or caused it to happen. And so talk about change on sort of a larger level, that corporate level, but then, you know, just making changes in our individual lives can be very difficult. What advice do you have for people wanting to make changes in their own lives, but might be getting stuck?
1: Yeah, first step, have a plan and then take that plan And cut it into smaller but measurable pieces. So let's say uh, I want to lose 40 pounds. That's the big plan. Now cut it into smaller pieces. Okay, to start, I'm going to go to the gym once a week. And then you celebrate the small wins. So the weeks Mm. that you, you actually make it to the gym, you celebrate that. But then the next step is you give yourself grace. You may fail, right? And I think a lot of times, sometimes we're our hardest critics. And so finding that space within yourself to say, okay, I didn't get to the gym this week because this, this, this happened. I won't beat myself up and come Monday, I'm right back at it. And here's the biggest message. Don't block your change blessing. I learned that with the school that I went to, right? I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave my friends yeah. and look at it. Mm. It turned out to be my change blessing, right? Yeah. I didn't want to work for Wells Fargo. Yeah. And now here I am five years later, the longest I've ever stayed at any organization. So I was yeah. almost blocking my change blessing.
0: When to my challenges is just like i have a fixed view on the way things should be but then as things start unfolding in a different way being open to that change blessing uh, and you talked about this a little bit before is that you know those who are resistant to change and how do you balance responding to those who are resistant and they have probably very solid reasons f- to hold those views but then there might be a strategic vision for an organization how do you respond to those who are resistant to the change while also holding on to a vision of like this is where we want to go
1: mhm that's a great question and i'll go back to my acquisition days there are times when i would give the presentation and I get to the end of my presentation and I'm packing up my bag and an employee walks up to me and says Camille I have to tell you I'm really nervous about the changes right now and for me I always wanted to know the why what has you fearful where's the trepidation coming from and knowing the why sometimes is really the easiest way to resolve the fear so I've had numerous times where an employee will walk up to me and say, Camille, my spouse is eight months pregnant Uh and now you're changing the health care because we've now been acquired. That's a valid reason. Right. And so you immediately work through that important valid reason. But then Mm -hmm. you have some people who are just resistant to the change because change is uncomfortable with those people you follow. A slightly different process you still want to know the why right Mm -hmm. but you also want to give them space to digest the news so typically I would give people two to three days and then I will call and say let's have a conversation about the change I would allow for them to discuss any questions or concerns that they have I would provide a safe space for them to vent yeah And then end the call with a two-way commitment. So I would commit to them, hey, you know, I really want this to be an ongoing dialogue. So I'll commit to maybe one or two more calls with you to kind of help you along this change process. But here's the commitment I want from you. The next time we meet, have three things that truly impress you about this new organization so we can Mm. start our conversation with that level of dialogue. So... Essentially, I'm moving them along the change yeah. process, right? They don't realize it, but we're still moving forward in our dialogue. And now the conversation is taking a different turn. I like to think of the acronym PEAR. So when people are resistant to change, you think about being patient. You think about empathizing, encouragement, and then giving them the resources, okay? So peer, I'm going to be patient because I know change impacts people differently. I'm going to be empathetic because I can't imagine waking up knowing that I no longer work for ABC company. It's been sold. The leader of this organization in most cases they exit stage left immediately yeah. after they've sold their business. Yeah. So this person that I trusted is no longer with us. So I'm going to empathize in what this huge change means to that employee, I'm going to encourage them that they still have a place in this new organization. And then last but not least, I am going to resign myself to know that if I can't bring that person along in the change process, that I'm gonna provide them the resources for that continual growth that they might want to do on a personal level.
0: That's beautiful. And is patient, empathizing, encouragement and resources. I'm sure I'll I'll refer back to that a lot in the future. Is and something which is really interesting about change. I've heard the term once called the messy middle. Right, there's rarely a straight path that you like. Today I'm going to eat well, and this week one pound, next week two pounds, forty weeks from now it's forty pounds. There's a part way through where it just gets messy and uncomfortable. And it's really hard for people sometimes in those moments to maintain trust that the change is a good thing. And so then you start questioning yourself, like whether I can actually lose the weight. What's your advice for people to hold on and stay in there? So, because it's very easy to say, well, hey, this is not going to work. How do you coach people to stay in there?
1: Yeah. So let's talk about from a corporate perspective. Aligning your career to your passion. When you pick an organization to work for, that should be one of your biggest deciding factors. I know sometimes it's money, it's PTO, it's all these different things. But if you align your career to your passion, when change comes, and it will come, you are grounded because this is what I want to do. I'm working for an organization that truly supports my passion. Personal change, when it begins to get messy, And it begins to get to the place where you start questioning yourself, like, why did I think this was going to be a good idea? You begin thinking about where you were, how you started and realizing, okay, I'm not where we need to be, but now I'm not where we started. So now you have to make a decision. Do I go back or do I go forward? right and oftentimes it's important to fail forward so if you're mm. you're not where you want to be you still keep trudging along
0: one final question about change management what are the tools or skills do you think students need in order to manage the inevitable change that is heading their way
1: effective communication skills we have to teach our students that you have to be able to clearly articulate your feedback, right? You cannot text your way through change. The -hmm. next thing I would suggest is conflict resolution skills. Mm -hmm. Everyone is not going to be at the same place that you are or feel the same way that you feel. So learning Mm -hmm. how to navigate through that conflict when it comes will help students tremendously. And then the last thought I have is really having students understand and support diversity of thought. We don't all have to think the same way. Celebrate your uniqueness, your ideas, and your thought in that Mm -hmm. moment. So give yourself a voice. You're in a room and if all five people think that this is the way to go and you strongly believe otherwise, respectfully provide that feedback. Maybe the room needs to hear there's another way. Often, I think it's easier for students to not use their voice when it's so needed.
0: So effective communication skills, conflict resolution skills, and support diversity of thought. And it actually reminds me of a book I just started reading. It's called High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out by a lady named Amanda Ripley. It is so important, that ability to work our way through difficult moments with people. What is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others?
1: Yeah, The Leadership Challenge by James Moses oh. and Barry mm-hmm. Posner. I love their work on leadership and how they play a role within the organization.
0: And what are some things you love doing in your free time?
1: Free time? I have a teenager.
0: Remember when you used to have free time? What did you like doing then? Yeah.
1: Oh, wow. So free time. I love hiking. Chasing Ah. waterfalls is my new love, right? So Mm -hmm. definitely hiking and chasing waterfalls. I made the huge mistake of taking Skylar with me to hike South Mountain State Park recently. I think maybe three weeks ago. And the mistake that I made is that no forty plus person should be hiking with a teenager. <laughs> it just does something to your spirit and your soul <laughs> when they're that far ahead of you, not even busting a sweat, and you're near death. Okay? <laughs> so I won't make that mistake again. Okay. So scrapbooking Skylar's high school years as well is it, something that I like doing in my free time.
0: It's funny because now I'm 45 and I got an 11 year old and a five year old him. And- say six years ago when my eldest was five, which my youngest is now, we would sort of chase each other, right? And I would have to sort of slow down so she could catch me. And now with my five-year-old, like I'm having to speed up so she doesn't catch me. It's amazing the difference just a few years can make it, getting in your forties. If you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why?
1: Ah, to play the steel pen. That's something I really it's on the bucket list to do, right? It's it's native to Trinidad and it's an instrument and music is my jam. So I really want to learn how to play the steel pen.
0: Yeah, beautiful. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior or habit has most improved your life?
1: Having courageous conversations in the moment. Mm. I used to let things fester. I was that person who who didn't have the conversations in the moment. So as it festers, then when and if I I let it go, you know, it's not in a way that's conducive to an honest dialogue. And so I've really learned to have those courageous conversations in the moment where you're able to just sit down and speak on it and then let it go.
0: Yeah. That's, and how did you learn to do that?
1: Because it wasn't serving me well. Okay. I'm festering and the person is clueless that they've you know, harmed me. Yeah. And so at some point you realize if you're not sharing, I'm not giving yeah. them the ability to say, whoa, wait a minute. I didn't mean it that way. Or whoa, wait a minute. I apologize. Right. Yeah. So you're missing the moment in allowing them to either own Or share their thoughts as to how we got here. For me, that's what really drove me to, okay, it's time to find that spot in myself where I'm comfortable with having courageous conversations in the moment, rather than letting it stew and boil, you know, when you do finally share it. It's not conducive to move the relationship forward.
0: Yeah. When I first became a school administrator 10 years ago, I realized all I was doing was having... Difficult Conversations and Answering Emails. So I read everything I could on both, but I read a number of books like Difficult Conversations, Courageous Conversations, Fierce Conversations, uh, Crucial Accountability. But I remember one line in particular, there's a myth that if you speak up, you'll ruin a relationship and you have to stay quiet to maintain it. And they said, you can have honest conversations with people and still strengthen the relationship. It's not easy, but it's something that I've been working towards sort of since that time. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a similar career to yours?
1: So, HR is a broad industry. Yeah. And a lot of times when I speak to students coming out of school or, or students going in and they ask me, "Miss Camille, how do I do this, right? Right. I've even had one person say, Camille, I don't like speaking out loud. Well, HR is broad enough that if you like numbers, then you can be in compensation, right? Mm -hmm. Or I've had someone say, well, I'm really into fitness and health. Well, you could be a wellness director within a large organization, being responsible for the health and wellness of the employees. Or even the person that says, hey, I want to teach, but the thought of teaching kids scares me. I have the passion, but I don't know if I wanna be in a school system. Well, so be a learning and development instructor within a, a large organization, so teaching employees. So I would definitely say, think about your undergraduate degree in human resources management, I would say, speak to your passion. So whether it's Mm -hmm. numbers, whether it's, again, fitness, whatever it is, you can find that within human resources. And then lastly, I would say definitely join organizations. So there are so many HR organizations for you to start meeting with peers and getting their knowledge of what's going on in the industry and the great organizations to work for in order to learn and grow and really just move around don't stay in one space so i started in the financial industry with merrill lynch but i moved on into various different industries so government contracting small business working for a startup organization That's so much fun because you're putting your blood, sweat and tears in with the initial people and you're growing as the organization is growing. So definitely experience different levels of organizations if you're thinking about an HR career and be open to having your career move and change. So again, when the organization acquired companies internationally, I then became a global manager. So being yeah. open to having your career change as the organization does as well.
0: Okay. And so the final question I have is, what inspires you?
1: Okay. This is going to be a hokey answer, but it's honestly the truth. Skyler inspires me. Yeah. Being her only living parent, it forces me to be the best version of myself every single day, or at least try to. Every day... Seeing her wake up with the reality that her life is different in a sort of way, it makes me push and continue and seek my motivation with her success.
0: She's such a great kid and we're so lucky to have her here at Davidson Day. And well, Camille, I've truly enjoyed this. The reason I wanted to speak with you today, I've always enjoyed the times we've had to chat and I often make copious notes as we're talking and I'm sure people have got many incredible diamonds of advice during this conversation. I really appreciate all your time today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day.
0: The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.